So, um, one of the things that I really like about our talking is that we could talk about things that other people just wouldn't really be able to be able to talk about if they haven't practiced or really, um, it's really their experience too. They experience everything that I maybe think about or experience at a deeper level, but they don't ever look into it and they never look into why the processes continue. And so, I mean, that's like what I really benefit from talking about with us. That's kind of one of the things that really feels good. It's being able to talk about things that other people just can't relate to, or maybe they never looked into, you know? Um, and Would you go so far as to say things that they aren't, they don't want to talk about, which is also a way of saying they don't want to think about. Or another way of talking about it is that it's the things that we want to hide from. And that the reason that we want to hide from them is because they're painful. Indeed, yeah. And it's painful to talk about them. And so it's better to not talk about it. So we try to take the easy way out. That's like the lion walking around with a thorn in his foot without taking a look at it and, and recognizing for what it is. And when anybody mentions that you're limping, he's going to get angry and growl. Don't talk about my foot. Yeah, yeah. And I've actually noticed that um, there's also a skill in talking to people in a certain way that they kind of want to be talked to, right? If we talk about the things that only we want to talk about, then, you know, if someone has an active ego, um, ego is really hard to define, but just kind of the general term is, uh, hopefully you can kind of understand what that ego is, right? It's that thorn. Mm -hmm. Well, um, funny that you mentioned that because the Buddha knew all about that. There is, in fact, a sutta, number 139 in the Nikaya that actually gives recommendations of how the Dhamma is to be taught. And that one of the issues that we have, basically, because there is a um, probably a deeper than absolutely necessary connection between psychology and Dhamma. And the reason for that is because psychology is well known. And psychology has to do with, in fact, solving individuals' problems, which already has the quality of selfishness, and this is my issue, and I need help, and all of that kind of stuff that's in there. To where in this sutta number 139, the Buddha is mentioning that if we can take our examples into the absurd and into the abstract and talk about it in the abstract, then students can see the absurdness in those things and then begin to apply that wisdom to uh, the minutiae that it actually applies to. But we talk about it in great big terms that are almost, oh, well, that's not me, therefore I can learn the lesson. But if it's about me, then I don't want to hear the truth because I don't want to, you know, I don't want you to pick at my wound or um, uh, pull at my thorn because it's painful. Okay. Exactly. And I had to experience that firsthand today because I was really 
it was selfish, I guess. I was uh, wanting to explore something that I was ex experiencing, and I wanted to kind of really have a conversation about things that I was exploring. And um, one of the things was about the concept of past or present. And um, I just kind of had an experience of people really kind of like their if you get into certain topics, if their ego is built on a certain concept, then even talking about that concept, you will begin to disturb the ego and they will get very, they won't really know what it is. They'll just kind of get defensive. And, and if you're open, you could feel it. You feel the tension in yourself, even if you're just feeling I there. Know. I have new students on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> See it all the time. <laughs> Yes, yes. And I just want to say, I actually, today I was kind of feeling the sense of compassion to desire to help other people and also realizing that that means really uh, being open to that experience, you know, being open to them having a bad reaction so I could learn a better way to teach, so I could learn more, you know. Um, so kind of like I, um, it's not like I just decided that I was ready to teach today. I've always in the back of my mind thought that the reason why I want to help people or a reason why I would like to help myself. And really what I mean by that is I've always just had this desire to do what a person can do. So to do like their potential. And over time I realized that that was what people would call enlightenment or some other term, right? But that's an entirely human thing that we can do. And so at some point I kind of realized that that was the goal was um, not really enlightenment, so to say, but whatever they were using to describe with this term enlightenment, it was a way of being that you're at peace and you can help other people as well. And that was something that I wanted to experience in life. I wanted to experience me and other people and, you know, helping them. And so in the back of my mind, I've always had that desire to help people and to, you know, reach some kind of enlightenment so that I could help other people as well. I say other people just to kind of but you know, it's just people. Uh, one one of the common topics that is raised is um, how Western Buddhism confuses things. The interesting point is, is that the word enlightenment has nothing to do with Buddhism, never has. And until we define it properly, it not it won't. Right. Yeah, And because it's not properly defined, everybody's got their own idea about it, which is often magical, which means that they're attaching to their views about it. And so it's not even a good idea to talk about enlightenment other than giving it a good definition. Yes, it's a very tricky topic because one of the things that I've realized in meditation recently was... Well, it's actually, it's a tricky topic because it's actually not a topic. That's the point. Yeah, it's a way of life. What makes it tricky is because we're trying to turn it into a topic. Yes. And okay. by that principle, <laughs> so much else of what that's really the issue that we have is our, we use these concepts and words and then we believe that they relate to something. Right. And that's kind of the power mm -hmm. of how words work. Word, a word itself, really, it works off of separation. So whenever I use the word ice, and water you we could kind of know that that means two different phases of something but then on another hand we could know that ice and water are really the same thing 
They're really the same element of water in a different state. But the word ice, you know, it really kind of gives, gives an idea that it might be something other than water. And maybe for a child, they really do think that ice is different than water. So one of the issues that I've begun to notice, it's, um, it's a kind of, um, it's something that happens as we grow and it's a part of the society that we live in. It's kind of the one of the issues that is trying to be overcome with what we call enlightenment, right? So when we have words that relate to things and we attach a concept of it, a concept is like our past and our all, every experience we've ever had with ice and that ties into the word. And so we kind of when we use the word ice, we something comes to mind and it, the concept of ice comes to mind. And now let's bring that back to like something more personal, which would be our experience of self. And so the issue really comes when our definition of self or the word that we have for self relates to me. It relates to the body for most people, body or the mind or an identity. And the concept of what that self means as being separate, it's kind of like they all kind of tie in with the, the word generates the concept and the concept causes damage because the concept is tying us into the past. It's tying us into every other time we have experienced water and ice. It's tying us into wanting things we don't have. Yeah. Yeah, because it's only a concept and we don't have the concept, whatever we're conceptualizing, we don't have it. And so it all it is greed to where true, um, if we understand it, enlightenment is um, to be happily unburdened with the things that we want. Right. Yeah. And, and so often enlightenment is exactly the opposite of what people are thinking enlightenment is right but in fact a much better word for you to use with people is not the word enlightenment at all you could use another word which would be unburdened because that's much more direct to the point and let me make it like this the word enlightenment has the key word is light and light is used in more than one way we have light in the sense of the light of day and putting a light on it or uh, seeing it with light means that uh, that has to do with knowledge. But there's also the word light, which has to do with not heavy, unburdened. Right. And, and this has then to do with deliverance. So the teaching of the Buddha of knowledge and deliverance, or to see the crap and avoid the crap, that's uh, uh, how the word enlightenment fits. But the way that it's used from our history, uh, it's got religious and um, uh, philosophical uh, entanglements already. Yeah. The right. same thing is now true with words like um, uh, nibbana. That that's a, a special word like enlightenment. It's something you don't have. But in fact, in our language, it's, uh, it doesn't cause any trouble when we would say to someone who understands what we're saying, hey, chill, baby. Yeah. Let's, let's chill. Let's just cool. Let's hang out. Okay. That is, in fact, what Nibbana is when it's correctly understood and used. It's just to chill.
Yeah. Which has to do with, uh, uh, let us say, temperature. That you you had the example of ice and water, and mentioning that they're the same thing, to where in fact they're not at all. There's a major component difference, and that is temperature. Yeah. That when the uh, water uh, has a lot of temperature, it's hot. And when it has uh, less temperature, it gets cool. And when there is no temperature at all, it freezes. That's what frozen is all about, is that there's no energy in it. All right, and so we can use that also in our understanding is, is that, yes, water has the quality, depending upon the temperature, to be solid or liquid, and everything else is like that, too. And that mainly what happens is, is that when people are not putting the right amount of energy in something, it gets frozen solid within them. And they think that the solidity of it is who they are. When in fact, if they just change the temperature, they could ease their way out. Put in the right effort, so to speak, just the right effort to warm things up a bit. So that would be the way of warming things would be to warm things into friendliness rather than having the chill of um, competition or the chill of competitiveness or the chill of criticism. We actually make things hard and solid or important when in think with a different attitude, we, things become light and airy-fairy and easy. Right. And so that's the issue that we have to actually begin to look at. It is not whether it is water or whether it is ice, but let's begin to pay attention to what's the temperature here. Right. Yeah, like the word is only important if it helps us to really kind of experience something now. And, um, you know, like the, the, the danger of words or the kind of the complexity with words is really that the concept doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. And so absolutely, not only that, but the same word doesn't mean the same or the same concepts don't mean the same thing to the same guy at, at different times. We change and we don't even give that recognition to, hey, man, sometimes we feel like a nut and sometimes we don't. Sometimes yeah. we're up, sometimes we're down. And that's the samsara cycle. And if we don't um, want to see that or that we deny it, then we miss out on much of the trip. Much of the trip is just up and down and over and over and over again. <laughs> but when we begin to see the cycles, because we're looking at it, we can see that some cycles are quite short. A tenth of a second, under a second, a minute that kind of thing. And some cycles are quite long. Like how long is it on the cycle of revolution between the time that the United States has one civil war to the next? <laughs> because the way, that, the way the democracies are set up, they're down, they're bound to become cyclical warfare. Right. Yeah, so... So that because kind of, otherwise than that, a government is is that uh, someone's in charge and everybody knows it. In a democracy, every, someone's in charge and somebody else says, "No, you ain't." <laughs> That's a democracy is an argument, a big, loud, ferocious argument. 
and it goes in cycles. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. Yeah, yeah, and really um, something that I've noticed is that when it comes to the cycle of the self, like the cycle of identification, um, that's been a really big topic of interest for me lately um, because the first thing that I came to realize is what I was, the concepts that are relating to myself. Um, so one of them is, a, a you know, now that I've kind of figured out what wisdom is and I've begun to use my mind in a different way that we could say is more wise, uh, you know, there is the attachment or the concept of me being wise. And, um, you know, sometimes people will, it's a very weak one. It's a very subtle attachment because I kind of have seen the way that the game works. And so I don't let it take root like it used to. But I could still tell that it's in there, that the cycle is continuing to happen because when I, you know, I have experiences and every now and again, some something will happen and it will kind of trigger me in a certain way. But then if I look into it, it's because they didn't uh, respect. I'm reading something subtle into what you said. Let me pull that out and see if we can work with it a little bit. And that is a lot of people, their ideas of enlightenment is, is that we can somehow control to bring the, the sequence of events, the cycles, the over and over again, somehow we can bring it to a stop. Okay, guess what? That's not enlightenment. Enlightenment is seeing the cycle and enjoying the ride and stop trying to grab hold of things to pull it you know, you that's not right effort. The right effort is to hang on while you're enjoying the ride. Right. Yeah. To basically still live life in a regular way. You still want to interact with other people, or at least I do. But I don't want to be caught in a kind of. I don't of know what you mean by regular, but we'll go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> there is such how, a wide how, how about in a friendly, honest way? The yes. twin combinations of the two words, friendly and honest, is what I would call the duty to the Dhamma. Our duty to the Dhamma is to be friendly within and to be friendly without and to be friends. The Buddha says that's the whole Dhamma. But he also has the quality in there that's built in with right speech that has to do with the quality of honesty. That any group has uh, friendliness but not honesty is going to wind up being a den of thieves. And it's not going to stay friendly. Or you can have an organization that's built upon honesty and not friendliness, and you've got war. But when you have both friendliness and honesty, that's what we need to have Sangha, where things are open, exposed, and people are willing to look at what's going on and see clearly and help each other to do that. That's the Sangha, but it has to be done friendly and it has to be done honestly with the right timing and phrasing, the Buddha says. Yeah. Very important on that one, right? Yeah. Um, well, the, well, the right timing and phrasing has to do with the establishment of the friendship before you take a dump on them. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true, right? Yeah, like I've noticed that if someone, um, you could almost notice the ego by the kind of suffering that it creates. And so, you know, one of the things about the ego is this kind of attachment or this, um, 
really the ego is this cycle of identity. Actually, I don't want to claim to know ego. I'm still kind of really looking into how that process happens. I've found out how it happens consciously. A better way of doing it is to first off come out of the pop psychology jargon using the word ego. Mm-hmm. That in fact, the, the if you're using Freud, ego is not the issue. It's the yeah. id is the issue, but that's yeah. not the issue. It's the super ego. All right. So let's look at that that stuff in the in the sense of coming back and using better language, and the better language that I have found for people to understand what we're talking about is by using the word selfish, selfishness. Okay, and what I mean by selfishness is, is that when we think that there is danger and that something, a self needs to be protected. And so the uh, so the act of protecting one's illusionary self is selfishness. We're acting to protect something that doesn't exist. It's a delusional behavior. Right. Right, delusional. Now it it comes out of something, and what it comes out of is the self-preservation instinct that we have been as a species for many, many millennia be kept alive because of the self-preservation instinct to keep each individual alive. But in our modern society, that instinct is not well regulated, and so it winds up with a false positive on a regular basis so that we wind up bringing in the self-preservation instinct rather than understanding its values and uses. Right. And also it's not there all the time in the sense that the self-preservation instinct is not keeping you uh, selfish and angry and frustrated and in fear all the time. If someone is like that, more than likely he'll either uh, commit suicide or clutch himself to death. That the most miserable people have the out of life ain't worth living, and so they don't. They stop. But luckily and fortunately, not only you, but all the most, all the people that you know do have occasionally some good times. Yeah, for sure. Right. So we're not always stuck in dukkha. It comes and it goes. We're in and we're out. The question is, can you recognize that cycle? Can you see how things are coming so that you can step out of the way rather than trying to stop them from happening? Good example. Imagine that you're standing on a road, a highway, And down comes the road is a big semi or a big truck. And he's actually honking his horn to let you know here he comes. Now, the average person standing in the road has three possible choices. One is to ignore the truck and get run over. Or the other one is to see the truck, see it coming, stand there watching it hit him. 
The next option is for somebody to stand in the road, see the truck coming, and put his hand out and say, oh, no, you don't. We're going to play a Popeye here. We're going to have our little can of spinach, and we're going to stop that truck from hitting us, all right? That is what we call Mahasi meditation. But there is a third option or a fourth option, and that is to just really stand out of the road, stand out of the way. You saw the truck, you saw it coming, let it go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So meditators who have the, the, the practice of choiceless awareness see the truck coming and let it hit them. Those who are practicing the Mahasi noting method, they're noting everything that that truck does to them. But the Buddha teaches Anapanasati, which has to do with the wisdom to see what's going on in the mind and to change those unwholesome thoughts before they barrel into you. Yes. To change it from unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. Right. In other words, we just step out of the way. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no more lorries. There's no more uh, big rigs. Because there's going to be lots of big rigs. If we said once we stand out of the way of the big rig, there's no more big rigs, we are bound to, uh, for sure to get run over again. Right. No, what we need to learn instead is, instead of saying there are no more big rigs, said, hot dog, I know how to stand out of the way of big rigs. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm going to be especially alert to practice to make sure that I see the big rigs rolling so that when they do, I can stand out of the way. Yeah. So this is another kind of self-preservation instinct, but this one is built, it's not instinctual, it's built in wisdom. To where the instincts, its only language is fear. And so we go around being afraid a lot because we've got this self-preservation instinct that's in gear, finding things and then deciding that we it's okay to be afraid of it. And almost always what we're afraid of is not the reality of the moment, but it's the rules. An example of that would be, oh, that big rig should not be on my road. Right. Trying to make rules or we make standards for ourselves. Many times we make standards for ourselves that we can't meet. Like, oh, I should become enlightened. Yeah. And then because enlightenment is just a concept, we can't get what we want. We're actually creating dukkha in the name of freedom from dukkha. Yeah. I really like the word freedom. That one really hits home for for enlightenment for me. Whatever I'm talking about with that term, it really relates to like freedom or being unburdened. Yeah. And then um, one of the things that is burdening us is really this preservation instinct coloring our experience and coloring our thoughts as negative and bad based off of the self-preservation, which is really based off of identification as me being the body. That's kind Mm -hmm. of the root of self-preservation is I am the body. Um, that's kind of like it's automatic programming uh, that it comes programmed with. And you're right. It is part of the baseline programming. It's built right into the DNA. But the bigger problem with it is not that. 
it's that humanity has not overcome that. That we still, even though we are quite capable of acting human moment by moment, we wind up acting like dumb animals instead. Why? Because we're following our instinct. We're following our gut. We're following our heart. No matter what dangers that may lead us into, we're not using our wisdom. So a better practice would be like in the present moment, always seek to be in the present moment with uh, gladdening the mind. And then from that, obviously, when you're if the self-preservation instinct is controlling our experience by coloring it with fear and anxiety, if we're gladdening the mind, obviously, the, those two don't blend together. So exactly. So yeah, that's one way to kind of get ourselves out of this, the issue with the the self-preservation instinct. And then the next one would just be use wisdom to kind of go from there. Precisely so. So a way of saying it is, is that unwholesome thoughts are unwholesome because they trigger the self-preservation instinct. Thoughts are unwholesome because they trigger instinctual behavior. And wholesome thoughts are wholesome precisely before they stay in reality rather than triggering instinctual behavior. Yeah. And you see that all the time. In fact, we see it in the sense that bullies go around knowing exactly which buttons to push. They are trying to get people to give them an instinctual, non-intellectual answer. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like you said it earlier, that um, the issue isn't just that, um, you know, the issue isn't just me kind of doing everything right. The issue is also that society itself can use some help too, you know. And so um, that's kind of a point that I've come to recently. That's what I was kind of, feeling with the teaching and the sharing is that in the past I used to really fear really not sharing the good thing right sharing but actually having it hurt someone else because I'm sharing what I want to share and um, now that I've kind of come with enough practice and I've really moved away from what I'm thinking and I'm really just experiencing reality as it is and um, you know like I'm kind of I'm starting to get the process and I'm starting to experience life as just a regular kind of natural human being uh, not burdened by the fears and the desires and the impulses or the ignorance um so just i'm just kind of like living in a more pleasant way uh more wisdom and more happiness and um you know i when i you know the funny thing was in the beginning i wanted to be enlightened for the ego right that's the kind of the funny thing it's the ego that wants to be enlightened. That's the, whole, that's the whole point. You can say it that way, but another way of saying it is, is that we want things we don't have because we feel insecure inside with the way things are. And so yes. there's that self-preservation instinct arising that you're calling ego. Right. Yeah. And, and so you said, you said try and find different words for it. And when you said that kind of... Um, yeah, like the self-preservation instinct, really coloring our thoughts and our experience. That's a good way to put it. Um, one thing that I've and also thought. So wholesome thoughts would be those kind of thoughts that don't trigger that self-preservation mechanism. 
That's the way of thinking about it, Dan, is is that if we're having wholesome thoughts, that means that things are safe. They're not dangerous. Having dangerous thoughts make you feel like there is danger, and making one feel like there is danger is the very definition of fear itself. Feeling insecure. Right. Yeah. And in fact, there's no reason to feel insecure. Even if you're getting busted by the cop. If you feel insecure, he'll pick up on that and really make up, uh, you know. But if you're completely secure when you meet the cop, then he's just another person and you're just another person and everything is okay. Right. But when we're afraid of the cops, that fear gets picked up and he's got his hand on his gun and that freaks us out. And so now we do something stupid and get shot. Yeah. And it all right. has to do with that fear sequence. And we, uh, you probably heard it. This is a religious way of saying it. And that is, is that whatever we fear, we invite and bring to us. An example of that is, is that when uh, the postman or delivery boy is on the property of the dog, the dog has got a territorial instinct. And the territorial instinct says, you get off of my property. Bark, 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 bark. When the person is not afraid, they don't pay much attention to the dog. They go about their business and everything is cool. But if they're afraid of the dog, they'll halter. They may want to leave, but they do so slowly because they're worried about the dog. And that's when the dog really starts yelling at the top of the dog's lungs. Bark, bark, bark. Get the heck off of my property. And the guy is just frozen there in fear, afraid that if he moves, the dog will bite him. The dog is not talking in biting words. Biting words for a dog are completely different than get off my land words. But the postman, many of them, they don't know that the difference in that language. And they are operating instinctually because they're afraid of the dog. And the dog wants them to be afraid so that he'll leave. But they're frozen in fear instead. And I see that almost, I mean, it, it happens on a daily basis here. Yeah. Yeah, and so like uh, the, I used to have a lot of practice or I used to, I still do. Wisdom is a, an insight is a very good way to kind of look into things. But also, if you just look into negativity, it doesn't always result in the negativity vanishing. That only would help if the negativity or the fear was unfounded, if it was a total figment of my imagination and false. No, telling yourself that it was unfounded. If it can, it's in fact, most often it is unfounded, but we still talk ourselves into that it's founded. The reality of the fear is irrelevant. It's how we think and feel and what our attitude is about the fear. Yeah, and that comes back to like, um, you know, back to the April Noble Path precisely. (laughs) Yeah. Something I noticed that recently um, is that, um, you know, like it's it's really hard to figure out how to shift from that. If you don't know gladdening the mind, it's really hard. So like in the past, I wouldn't really know how to shift out of the problem. I wouldn't really realize how to get away from this center of self that or this self-preservation instinct. Um, which is like, you know, it's supposed to be there. It has some kind of a good purpose, I guess. 
But the real issue you is that... You were literally talking yourself into feeling bad and didn't recognize that that's what you were doing. Yeah, because within that, the, the self-preservation instinct thinks that it's doing the right thing. It thinks mm -hmm. it's actually saving us from death. And so all the things that we like about life, it thinks it's preserving those. Exactly. And so what happens is, is that the um, being under the influence of fear, the thought system then is, what can I think up to do that by doing that, I won't feel this fear and anxiety? Well, guess what? If we do go do something and think about that and do that and not think about the anxiety, then the anxiety will go away. But the delusion is, is that 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 I did makes me feel safe rather than because I am no longer talking myself into feeling unsafe and going off and doing something else. I feel safe. That's the natural state to be in. So we we feel fear and we say, oh, this because I got to go write that email. And so we go write the email. And we feel better because we got the email written, right? No, we feel better because we stopped feeling bad about not writing it. Whether you write the email or not is irrelevant. It's not the email that causes the uh, reduction and elimination of the fear. It's that we're changing our thought patterns. Right. Yeah. And so I kind of um, unconsciously, I mean, I ha having the practice is really helpful. Today, I kind of had a example of um, this one was a, was a little bit harder for me to deal with. It took me probably like a minute or so before I really was able to kind of stop trying to be wise, which really was just me ruminating in the thought because I was just letting the, the anxious thought go on. But really, it was um, what was happening was that I was kind of like a little bit tired. So I went and laid down on my bed. And um, my neighbors, like one of them, they're just very, they were having a lot of conflict. And so their conflict began to escalate. And one of them was talking about like guns, you know, and like I have guns, you know, like don't come around me. So it really escalated to a point where it was really triggering that life or death instinct. And so um, I tried to, you know, look into the thought and tried to see. Everything all those that's important is a life or death issue. That's what the whole point about important means. Every everything is a life or death situation. Right. And as long as I was in that moment and as long as I was experiencing that. That experience, it wasn't just me experiencing it. I was kind of like experiencing what they were experiencing. So when I heard their voices in a certain tone, it triggered in me, you know, the knowing of what that kind of tone is kind of meaning, you know, like the danger is really about to come, you know. Um, and then there was also the thoughts of like, you know, I could be in danger and and other things like that. And uh, for, you know, a minute I was in meditation and I was just kind of like trying to reflect and be present. And and so when this happened, I was like, all right, this is another thing to practice on. This is just a present moment thing. I'm just going to kind of try to glad my mind and be here with what's going on, try and keep the thoughts positive and stay in this place. Wow, that's and, a whole lot of rumination when you could you just says, well, I'm glad I'm not fighting with those guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so trying to really understand 
the what was going on was kind of really it was a manifestation of that fear instinct continuing to try to work its way into a solution um although in this case yeah. i was yeah that's the whole point that i'm making is is that that fear is actually a message saying go do something yeah and after a and minute so or so, we listen to that message and we get the idea that we've got to go do something instead of recognizing that this is a false go do something message. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely because I didn't really solve whatever the issue was. Um, right. I just, Thank you. I'm glad that you didn't. Yeah, no, Those I just went not, else. Yeah, <laughs> you did. You Sorry, what? I just went and did something else. I went back to reading and I went back to like listening to music. And basically within those things, those are stimuluses for good thoughts. So it's probably not as effective as if I had just in the moment found a way to. What what, what do you think would be a good way to gladden the mind? How would I? Because there was a real possible potential. It was okay. low. Yeah. So like when sitting um, here. Doing nothing. And I hear the neighbors arguing. The first thing happens is the curiosity, what's up? But when you do come to the point of recognizing the, uh, the neighbors are arguing, it's ah, not my problem. But you don't have that kind. You have the idea that it is your problem because you hear it. The but fear the comes up. They had guns there right outside my door, you know, like if a gun went off, it could have hit me, you know, low chance. But that's kind of the thought line. Oh, well, then in that case, I can lay down on the floor. Yeah. Now it's not my problem. Right. But yeah, remember but I mean, that the shot coming through the wall and the shot coming through the door and hitting you is only your fears concept of I've got to go do something. There are no gunshots being fired at all at any walls. And here you are thinking you've got a duck for cover. That's how the mind works. We project into the future the dangers that we're, fear, we're feeling instead of recognizing that the fear itself is a false flag. Right. Yeah. The so people I mean, argue all the time and talk about guns all the time. Yeah. And people get shot all the time, but that's not your problem. You haven't gotten shot yet. But I would kind of want to at least in some way be a little bit aware of it. That way, if it the situation did come around, that I would not just kind of stand in the middle of the road. Why I would think I live in Thailand. Yeah. Yeah, that's so I mean. The, that's one of, the, one of the reasons to be on, uh, on the list of not being at a place where guns are the solution to any problem at all. In Thailand, guns are not a solution to anyone's problem. Therefore, there's no guns around. We don't see them as tools to solve problems. Right. We see problems as a problem. Solving the problem is stop having problems instead of trying to shoot your way out of problems. Right. That's the Western mentality, and they bring Without bringing their gun, they bring that mindset to the meditation hall. That they go out gunning for their dukkha, in a way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really ingrained in there. It's really hard to really come to that point where you can realize that 
you know, the solution isn't really what it seems to be because the solution seems to be think more about it, find a solution that'll solve it. But the deeper mm -hmm. issue that would only solve the issue for that situation. The deeper issue is that the and brain it is creates the next. Yeah. And, and so, so we just go from one situation to the next to the next using the same old hammer beating on the same things that we think is a nail. And so, so I guess the only tool we have is that hammer. That's the Western mindset. Oh, I feel afraid. Get my hammer out. Is there any language, like, yeah. The language you're using, we use the word gun, but it's the same thing. Just another weapon, just another tool. I need help here, you know, because I feel afraid. Right. Yeah, the issue is almost similar to like with pleasure, like the fear is bad and then you want to go and, you know, take some action on it to try and resolve it. And then pleasure is good and you want to attach to it. And so it's just this kind of endless cycle of really not knowing what the source of the issue is and not knowing how to get away from it. And then the solution is to, you know, it's not really like just one and done, right? I was hoping that it would be. I was hoping that some culmination of wisdom and knowing how the process happens, that I would, that it would kind of stop it. But it takes a little bit more than just recognizing and just knowing how the mind works. You also have to practice it. And then over time, what used to be habitual in terms of following the negativity or chasing the pleasure or avoiding whatever, you really kind of come to the same process of momentum with the practice like eventually when you begin to learn to do it better it's really about organizing the mind or learning how to operate the mind or use the mind um, in such a way that um, you know it doesn't recreate that same issue or rebundle it in a new way because the issue isn't always fear for my life sometimes it's fear for my reputation that's a kind of a different way that that same self-preservation instinct is at play that's maybe not as noticeable, but it's mm -hmm. really it's the same, the, the functional issue. Your concept of one and done needs to be addressed a little bit. And that is that, uh, let's use the analogy of a very, very young child, two years old, learning to stand up and walk. OK, get it just to stand up. Mostly they crawl around on their knees and, and just sit up on their knees. But to actually stand up to walk takes a lot of effort, a lot of struggle. And the young child is going to fall down over and over again. He can just stand up and then he falls down. Later, he can stand up and stay standing up until he takes the first step. And then he falls down with the first step. Then later he could take two steps and fall down, but it's a matter of falling down over and over and over again. As the child matures over the next year or so, giving, getting some guidance, a helping hand and other things like that, he begins to learn to walk. Which means now that he's actually doing some of the mechanism, figuring it out that he had to figure out in real time, he stored that as conceptualizations for how the body should move. Now, as he grows up, he actually gets quite sophisticated in being able to walk because he's got all of that training that he's put into it. But the adult 
if he's not watching where he's going, will still trip over furniture and fall down. We call these accidents because we're not watching where we're going because we think that I have mastered walking. Okay, yeah. been there, done that in the regard of I don't have to put any more effort into it at all now because I've got it. In other words, I've got the habit of walking and that should be enough. That's all I need. No, you still need to watch where you're going. You still need to be awake, awake and alert. That we don't ever want to put everything or even anything on automatic pilot. That that's been the problem all along is we keep relying upon automatic pilots and thinking that I can get enlightened to one and done and then I don't have to watch where I'm going anymore. No, if that's the case, then the enlightenment is now you're really paying close attention to every step that you take. You're not putting that walking into automatic pilot. Yeah, no, that definitely kind of hits the nail on the head. Yeah. So we're turning things around. We're actually waking up by developing the skill of of sati to keep coming back to the here now and keep checking things over and over again to keep watching where we're going. That's the new habit that we're going to develop as a skill rather than the old skill of relying upon instincts. We're now not going to rely upon the instincts. We're going to make friends out of them because the instincts have gotten us quite a lot. And not only that, but if we're really good and sophisticated at it, we can actually use the instincts to our advantage. Make friends out of them. We got comrades, amigos. Oh, I'm sick today. I can't possibly talk on the internet. I'm just so, so sick. My neck hurts so bad. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is how we begin to, uh, to see that, all oh, we can use even our sickness as a friend. We can use even the uh, the instincts of fear. Because now we say, oh, well, if I know that it would be dangerous to take a Gatling gun or even a rifle and load it up and walk into a police station and start shooting bullets, because I know if I do that, I'll become intensely afraid because of the police's reaction. Because I know in advance that I would put myself into a very dangerous situation by taking a loaded gun and fire it in the police station. I don't carry loaded guns into the police station. I don't even carry a loaded mouth into the police station. Okay. That'll often keep, in fact, it's better to avoid police stations altogether unless you've got a really good reason in there, and that is to go see a friend who happens to be a cop. Yeah. Yeah, no, I kind of get it. You know, like the whole process is kind of you want to understand how this thing that seems like a helper is really not always so helpful. And you want to kind of learn how to, you know, um, help yourself, I guess. And really to right. see by not relying upon it, but make it an ally instead. Yeah, Okay. that that you that you let your um, instincts become your, uh, let us say, the errand boy rather than the CFO of your organization, that your instincts become just an errand boy as opposed to the boss. Most people, they, the instincts, they operate instinctively means that the instincts are the boss. And their wiser mind, the frontal cortex, that which makes us human, the adult, 
is not the boss. Either the child or the parent are the boss. Parents are the boss because they're bossy. Child's the boss because he's the one who has all the feelings and the feelings run the show anyway. And yeah. so we have a kind of a war between the parent and the child, mostly because the parent is critical of the child. So the child feels afraid. And so by stop criticizing ourselves and becoming nurturing, now we can control the fear through wisdom. And we could still take whatever action if it was important action to take, you know, but we just don't let that. But now we take the action through wisdom rather than through fear. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like. Right, because ultimately we wouldn't want to, you know, castrate ourselves from fear that has some way of kind of eventually at some point. Having to save your life someday. Yeah. And so the issue is when we feel fear all the time or when we feel these things all the time and they get stuck once too often in a day, just once too often. Yeah. One false positive we don't need. Right. Yeah, no, yeah, the no. False positives are going to occur when we're not watching, when we let the instincts take over, they're going to do their job. Right. This is what Sati is all about. Wakey, wakey, look at what you're doing. Let's pay attention now. Let's observe, let's watch. This is all what the Buddha is talking about with um, investigation. Or in uh, in the Pali, it's Sama Area Ditti, right noble viewing. Now, when the English language translators got a hold of that, they changed the verb into a noun. Right noble view does not mean right noble view like a concept or a worldview or an idea or an opinion. What we mean by right noble view is not a viewpoint, but it's viewing, looking, investigating, noting, examining. A really clear example of that is uh, often the uh, at the beginning of Doyle's books on um, Sherlock Holmes, that Sherlock and Dr. Watson walk into a crime scene. And Dr. Watson is musing about people and thinking about things and looking at the items that he sees around the rooms and kind of tells himself a story about what's going on. What is Sherlock Holmes doing? He's got his spyglass and his tweezers, and he's looking. He's investigating. Right. Okay. That's the way that we begin to understand. Oh, our job is to not be a Dr. Watson, a know-it-all, a muser. Our job is to do an investigation. Is right. to look at what's going on. That's yeah. what right noble view is all about, is right noble looking and looking and looking and looking and looking. Looking when? Every time we remember to look. Right. Because yeah. when we forget to look, the instincts are naturally going to take over. Yeah, and then we just get like, um, that's definitely one of the issues is that, you know, if we don't learn how to constantly be thinking, what happens is that, you know, we go into a place and maybe we have an experience, we investigate for a second, but then when we see it, our mind creates all these concepts and all it ties in all our past experience and we're no longer investigating, we're no longer looking, we're really experiencing our past 
and that mm-hmm. is experiencing like anxiety and fear and all these other things. And so, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. really just trying to figure out how to stay present and to really not get into those old ruts. Ah, but that's the whole point. We don't have to figure anything out. All we have to do is remember to look. The figuring out will happen eventually on its own anyway. Right now, the only jobs that we have is remember to look. And when we look to see that this moment, this thought is unwholesome, then we take the right effort to throw that unwholesome thought out and gladden the mind and put a wholesome thought in. That's the whole show, at least the first three steps. And then when we get very good at that, doing it over and over again, we begin to build the confidence. Hey, I can throw crap out of my mind anytime I want to. Whippy dog. I can do this. Yeah. And that's the, that's the Sama Sankapa. That's the right attitude. We learn to get the right attitude is that I can handle this. I can do it. And yeah. then there is Sutta where the Buddha talks about that the first step of the actual noble path, the first step of the path is when the student has the confidence to say, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can clean that out, throw it out, come back to the present moment and see how things actually are. Then the Buddha says that this is the first knowledge on the path. It is super mundane. It is a factor of the path. It is noble. And it is not held by ordinary people. Ordinary people do not think or know that they can actually just stop what they're thinking and think of something new. Yeah, that's kind of what I've been feeling. I've been feeling some success with the practice. And then I've been wondering, I'm like, why does this keep happening? Why is it such a pull to think in these old ways? That's that, Right. That's the old way of thinking. Why do I keep going back to the old way of thinking is the old way of thinking. <laughs> You're already doing it. <laughs> well, so I mean, you can even say, "Ah, oh, I got you." In other words, it's not ever going to be over. What's going to happen is, is that you wake up to see the cycles. Not that you're ever going to get them to stop. Right. But they're going to make those cycles inconsequential. Yeah. Because it was delusional to think that they were consequential in the first place. That my fear is important. No, my fear is not important. It's not at all important. If I think it's important, that's and important enough, it's life-threatening. Right. But if I see my own fear is, oh, it's nothing. It's not important. Nothing to it. I just talked myself into feeling bad, and so I did. Isn't that marvelous that I can see that sequence? And now I can happily talk myself into stop being afraid. Because I recognize and tell myself there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just trying to create a new mind, you know, and, um, you know, just get into the practice. But um, that's the whole no, April noble path. Uh, and those four items, sati, right view, right effort and right attitude bring about right unification in the mind so that the mind becomes noble. The mind becomes uh whole that this um argument and dialogue between the parent and the child are in this moment no longer happening you mind if i just take a quick note real quick because that kind of outlines a recurring process that really is probably i'm going to do for i don't know how long until it becomes more so there's sati which is like remembering the breath or remembering the present right remembering to be here now Remember right. to wake up and look at what's going on. 
Yeah. And like um, I like to use the example to remember to wake up and smell the coffee. The smelling part is taking a deep breath. Right. Yeah, because so much of the suffering that we feel is really um, a kind of a uh, something to do with the past or a projection of a future. And um, yeah, if, if you get into the now and your mind is really just clear, it's just perceiving the now um, and you kind of have a balance to it. It's just so blissful, so amazing, beautiful, and it just feels satisfying. So there is a kind of a signature. There really, it does feel a certain way uh, when we're remembering now, free from the mind, kind of, you know, with the self-preservation instinct, kind of coloring our experience with a dreaded past or a feared future. So sati is really just, yeah. Remembering to gladden up. Remember to lighten up. Remember to throw the old stuff out, the past and the future, and to be here in the this brand new present moment. Right, which I've experienced so many times as being just incredibly blissful and joyful. So yeah. right I know, now is good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, All the problems of the world are either in the past or out in the future, but right now is good. Right. Yeah, it's it's this it, some anyways. Um, so right view. Um, what was that one was right viewing. It was about viewing this recurring experience as a kind of a process of the mind and how it can, it's just a recurring process. Is that what right viewing right. is? Yes. Yeah, still keep watching what's going on rather than coming to conclusion that ordinary right view comes to right conclusions. Noble right view doesn't come to conclusions. He's, any conclusions that we come to, we're ready to throw them out and take another look. That's a hard one, because as soon as a thought comes up, you know, they just, every thought, good, bad, neutral, they all seem to have. My this, thought, they're mine. <laughs> yeah, somehow, so. Yes, we do attach to our thoughts, recognizing that no, the thoughts don't belong to the self. The self belongs to the thought. Right. That that whole thing, how the self and the thought really kind of, they really come together, you know, like that's kind of one of the issues that I've noticed is that the way that the mind, I, that's the way I was framing it, is that the mind is coloring our experience in a certain way as if everything happens to me. So it's my thought. It's, um, you know, but really what's happening is I'm just experiencing a thought and then it goes, you know, that's not necessarily, but it seems like it's kind of focusing in and coming to me. But um, anyways, the, the thoughts are sticky. Even mm -hmm. if kind of like there's a natural tendency of the thoughts to create um, a kind of like, you know, you have a, an experience and then thoughts for one, 10 or five seconds, we kind of get trapped into them, you know? And mm -hmm. so it's hard to stay with, that state that doesn't get trapped into thoughts. And so um, I've experienced it and I've experienced how blissful it is. And then also, I guess it's, yeah, it just comes back to that bad habit. You know, it's not like the, I'm doing something wrong, really. I guess what I'm doing wrong is I'm not looking at it as uh, something I could change. I'm just letting it happen. And it goes to happen the same way it's always happened. And so that's kind of the, the bigger issue that's really making them seem so solid and um, like 
they just seem impossible to change because um you know ah, like but it's all but is it, it even if it's impossible to change the question is can you change at least your attitude about the things that you can't change yeah like thinking has a utility you know i wouldn't want to just be totally broken and never think if, again if you did they would either have you on life support or in the morgue right yeah so the goal is not really thinking is dead yeah you just want to have and i don't know why so many people hear about buddhism and think that all the point is is to have uh no mind at all or that the void mind is completely empty, it's completely void. And the real issue is to know that the void mind means that it's void of the unwholesome. Let's have wholesome thoughts. Friendly thoughts are okay to have. Unfriendly thoughts, but let's be void of unfriendly thoughts. Okay? How about lies? We could, we are, many people have their mind full of lies that they're telling, either uh, lies that they want to repeat to someone else to gain some advantage or the fact that they don't, they're in denial or whatnot like that. So we can say that we can be void of lies, but we can have thoughts that are true, truthful thoughts, thoughts that are true and thoughts that are friendly. Those are wholesome thoughts, thoughts that are untrue or unfriendly in either case, are unwholesome thoughts. So the likelihood uh, in general of is this thought, a random thought, is it wholesome or unwholesome, more than likely it's going to be an unwholesome thought because we have to intentionally make it wholesome by making it uh, friendly and making sure that it's true. And so this is the investigation that we're doing. We're always bringing it up with that discernment. Is this friendly and is this true? That's the question that we keep wanting to ask with every thought that we investigate. And, and thoughts not- of fear are often not friendly thoughts and thoughts of fear are almost never true. So friendly would be like, do I enjoy experiencing it? Is it pleasant? Is it helpful for me or other people? It's Mm -hmm. kind of like the way you would want to feel if a good friend, you know, like we want our thoughts to be like a good friend to us, to give us information. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's really what we want. Yeah. All right. So um, let's um, kind of change the topic just a little bit here because this is what we've been talking about today and go back to something that you said very early in the talk, which you were talking about, in fact, uh, sharing with others. When when the time that I was mentioning the sutta number 139 about how to talk to people with the Dhamma. And so now that we can go back and revisit that for a little bit, we can see that there is, in fact, one of the suttas in the in the fives in the Anguttara Nikaya. The Buddha uh, is referenced to have said that there are five ways to learn the Dhamma, and one of it is is by sharing it with a friend. Another one is by listening to a teacher. Another one is by mulling over the Dhamma and thinking about the Dhamma. Another one is actually practicing the Dhamma in the sense of practicing meditation, practicing sati over and over again. 
And then that big sore thumb, the big issue that the Buddha leaves is, is that the only way that you're really, really going to be able to really deeply understand the Dhamma in all of its aspects is by teaching it. That's kind of something that I've kind of come to as well. I mean, like, it's just, there's such a profound level of teaching that really comes, or it's some, something so special about teaching, because if it's just me, um, you know, like, I could maybe have a bad idea about myself, and, you know, but when it comes to other people, I don't have any ideas about me wanting to hurt other people. And so there's a different kind of. Yes, but if you go into a conversation or a situation to where you're already having thoughts that you're inadequate or that you're beating yourself up or that you're being bullied to yourself, that's going to bleed out to the outside anyway. Okay, that in fact, the teaching, if we're going to be teaching joy, the only way to teach joy is by showing joy. Right. Yeah. the only way to be t- able to teach friendship is to be friendly. Yes. That's the whole point of it is, is that that's where we actually, by the, the teaching of the Dhamma, is actually the practicing of the Dhamma when we're around other people. You cannot help but being the teacher. But if you also have the point of view or the mindset or the mentality is that this is an opportunity, this is sati right now, an opportunity to practice the Dhamma by sharing it with others. And I can share it with wisdom, I can share it with joy. But I've got to share friendship first. Friendship is more important than honesty. If you have honesty and no friendship, you've just got warfare. Two right sides banging at each other over i'm right i'm right i'm right i'm right right we need this first we need the community and the friendship before the the uh the truth is worth anything and that only teaching the dhamma will be able to teach you you have to actually practice that to see that you're not going to get anywhere with anyone if you're not going to be friendly with them yeah Earlier today, that example I was talking about, when I had tried to share something with other people, but I forgot the friendship component, it led to exactly what you're talking about. It was me trying to teach them a lesson or something, something valuable and beneficial that would kind of lead to less suffering. But I really didn't kind of focus on friendship because if I did, I probably would have stopped when they began to kind of clash. But I was so focused on teaching. And I was forgetting mm-hmm. that important component of, you know, really, um, it's not just about teaching. It's about kind of being a friend in teaching. And you're not going to shove wisdom down your friend's throat. You're going to give them what they ask for and what they could handle and what they, you know, would be able to accept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I had to learn that lesson the hard way. But luckily, you know, sometimes... There's no other way to learn any lesson except the hard way. But the whole point about it being hard, it means is that, number one, we screwed up, which now means it's a learning experience. And number two about the hard is that, oh, that's something that we're adding to it because we don't like the outcome. Yeah. Right. That we're adding all of that together. And back to the point that you were making before, that when you have the intention of teaching the Dhamma, the real intention is to share friendship and to share joy. You weren't even doing that with your 
in, inside your own mind. You were not even being friendly and honest with yourself. You were too invested in making your point. Yeah, right. Yeah. Stuck into that old rut of the mind of, uh, you know, it just does those things, you know. And so I, I definitely understood that I kind of am beginning to under, understand the practice intellectually. But if you don't practice it and you don't kind of um, live the practice while you're teaching it, then it's it really it's, it's a half. That's the only way you can teach the Dhamma is by living it and demonstrating it as you're teaching it. There is no other way it can be taught. And right. and that's why Western Buddhism has wound up what it is, is because it's been taught without friendliness. It doesn't have that uh, element of the Sangha. And there's also, by the way, not always honest. There's a whole bunch of horse manure in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so um, that's um, definitely just kind of, anyways, um, <laughs> it's it's definitely hard to learn and um i don't know you know like i enjoyed the whole process i enjoyed kind of like the desire to learn and i enjoyed really kind of getting a chance to think about things deeply and to really share just experience and and my past experience of how life happened for me and how it was difficult and how it was helpful and so I liked a lot of components of it. And I even liked when they had bad reactions because it kind of triggered something in me and I was able to really see where the bad reaction was coming from, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so even in the bad reactions, there still is wisdom. And so there still is kind of. Yeah, look at what's going on. That's how you, it's called course correction. Yeah. Yeah, Unfortunately, just, most people don't actually correct their course until they run into the curb, which is what you were doing. That's the hard part. It's trying to figure out what that feels like when you're in that different state of mind. Um, and it's, I guess for me, because the sati and the bliss and the joyfulness or satisfaction isn't, um, I guess there is, it's like there's some kind of piece of the mind that is trying to resist it so much that it says that the sati and the blissfulness is temporary, that it can't be sustained for long. And I guess it can't, but that doesn't mean that I experience it. Never mind, start again. That, yeah. that's, that's the wisdom or that's the attitude is, yeah, so what if I screw up? Never mind. Yeah. I can handle screwing up. And the, a big one for me is this kind of neutral zone where I'm not really feeling bad, but I'm not feeling good. I'm kind of feeling okay and reality is okay it's not bad it's not good it's not blissful i guess in that it's kind of neutral that is a very good feeling but then um there there's something else beneath it that is kind of like laziness i guess and so there's kind of like for me something i'm a teacher of laziness yeah the buddha is a teacher of laziness well, you got to be kind of aware and active and kind of when you're experiencing some kind of. Ah, it takes a whole lot of right effort to really be all perfecto at being lazy. Yeah. A lot of people try to practice laziness and they wind up screwing things up and giving themselves a whole lot more work to do. So wisdom is actually to take the easy way out. 
but you have yep. to be alert to do that. Not doing anything. Other. Yeah, because my mind was like lazy, don't do anything. But laziness just means taking the easy route, doing what's, you know, the wise uh -huh. and thing to All do. All right, so that laziness, uh, don't do anything, or let's take the easy way out, that's good. That's fine. There's no problem with that. That's what we're promoting. But after you have the thought of it's okay to be lazy and there's nothing to do right now, then the thought of some rule, oh, no, you can't be lazy right now. You've got to go do blah, blah. That's right. the next thought that comes up. If you can maintain the thought, oh, it's okay to be happy, it's okay to be joyful, it's okay to be lazy right now, let's take the easy way out, and you maintain that, you can maintain it. The fact is that you don't maintain that. You always come back to, oh, no, something terrible is going to happen if I enjoy my moment. Right, because something about the fear has a vigilance to it. It's always about being alert and active. And it doesn't like it wants to be in control and it wants to always take action. And if you're well, it's a fraidy cat. It's got things to be afraid of. It's got jobs to do. It's got a life to live. It's got, you know, all of this greed, ill will and delusional stuff to do. Right. Yeah. So when you've got no greed and you've got no ill will. And you can see the reality is that there's nothing to do and no place to go, that it really is okay to be hanging out. It's okay to chill. It's okay to just do nothing. And that's great. Yeah. And if you keep doing that, you'll have a wonderful life. And you still take action, right? No one can stay in the same place forever. Like that thought of, I need to take action doesn't necessarily... Means ah, but then you can go do what you want to do with complete freedom of doing what you like to do because you're no longer being required to do things that you don't want to do anymore. And you got into the habit when you were a child of put down your toys and pick up your pencil and do your homework. Yeah. Somehow that has a component of that's the wise thing to do because I guess that's just how well, that's it what the adults told us to do it. And they're the ones who were stupid. The, the child should say, hey, why don't you put down your pencil and sit on the floor with me and we'll have cartoons. Right. Yeah. But the child is not wise and neither is the adult. And so everybody is stuck in the way that society does things, which can be the uh, one of the hallmarks of that would be the phrase, if you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's that that phrase is false. Many hundreds of millions of people over the course of many centuries have been in the position of not working and eating just fine. Yeah, I mean, look at uh, politicians don't work and they eat. Infants, they don't work and they eat. Retired people, they don't work and they eat. Many college students, they don't work and they eat. Everybody, I mean, so many people don't work and do eat. So why all of a sudden when it's time to go for an occupation or a job or whatever, we always do it with the thought of, oh, I've got to. I've got to go. I don't. In fact, we use works like job and work. Because inherently, we don't like it. Why do we have to call our job the job? I mean, employment is a um, uh, a kind of a neutral term, but why don't we have playful words? Like, hey, I'm going to go play with the computer today instead of, oh, i got to go work. 
Right. It's yeah. all a matter of attitude. I guess the other thing that's kind of um, throws a, a little bit of a loop is that a lot of times when I think of a thought, what I think of is words in my head and some kind of like, you know, I could hear it. I could, it sounds right. But not all thoughts are like that. Something that I'm coming to realize is that throughout the day, it's almost like we have a permanent stream of thoughts, but I don't always experience thoughts as words and things like that. What I sometimes, a lot of times will experience is unconscious thoughts. And so like an unconscious thought, I might not actually hear the words in my head, but I might feel a certain way. I might feel bad for not working, or I might kind of feel like I'm mm -hmm. okay, or like I'm grudgingly working and I might not hear. Yeah. This would, what we're talking about now is mind moments. And that this would be a good topic of, of conversation for the next time that we operate. But I'll give you a beginner's uh, point in the sense of everything happens to us in the process of a mind moment, which is about a tenth of a second. And that there will be mind moments that we are spending in thought and mind moments that are not in those particular kinds of thought. A mind moment can be an itch. The time that you're spending actually experiencing the itch is an mind moment of itch, not a mind moment of thought. You might now think about it in the next mind moment. So basically what happens is, is that inappropriate or unwholesome thoughts will only occur one mind moment in the sequence of a whole lot of other stuff, but that mind moment was enough to turn the adrenaline uh, tank on and now we're beginning to flood up with fear but there's no such thing as background what there is instead of what are we going to do with this mind moment and this mind moment and this mind moment and this one and the next and the next and the next and so sati is actually beginning to wake up to how we're spending mind moment by mind moment and to be here in to always reconnect and really kind of reorganize the mind. It's not like an effort, like in terms of working. This isn't some kind of energy that takes. It's a uh, it gives energy because we're kind of getting rid of some of the negativity that maybe was like. I would say that enthusiasm is what makes right effort effortless. Yeah, it's enthusiasm, but enthusiasm is part of attitude. The Buddha actually speaks about this, is that uh, uh, the, the path that we're on becomes a path of what people refer to as dedication, but it's not dedication, it's enthusiasm, it's eagerness. We become eager to see what's going on. We don't want to miss an episode. Right. It takes a bit of we practice. Mm -hmm. yeah. We've woken yeah. up to the fact that we're in our own television program. We're on our own TV series, and I don't want to miss even one episode. Sure. So we talked. I just want to spend like one or two more minutes and maybe take some notes, too, so I could get an idea of the process. So we have the sati, which would be like remembering now the present moment to gladden the mind. The right mm -hmm. view sense of being led from the present moment so we're not experiencing the present moment and then thought and then thought and then thought it's just present moment present moment present moment and then or another way of saying uh samaditi or right view would be 
to uh, to view that you are viewing. To remember that you're looking to remember that you're investigating. So the right view is to view and to know that you're viewing. And not get into the whole like listening and following the train of thought, really just continue to look at whatever is happening. Um, that's really that one takes a little bit of effort to kind of not really, but it, you know, you got to get into it. Ah, when you get enthusiasm for it, though, it becomes easier and easier and less and less effort. Right, because we always think we have to do something, but sometimes just viewing is enough. If you view something and you see it's a problem, you're going to move out uh -huh. of the way. And if you exactly. view something, aha, uh -huh, I saw that. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, I see that. But if we get That's lost, the... we're just kind of trapped in it. Yeah. Well, um by not seeing we make things important because instinctively we do why do we make things important because everything becomes a matter of life or death that's what fear is all about and so we ignorantly make things important but wisdom we can look and says ah there's nothing to it ah there's nothing there ah i caught you <laughs> i see that yeah, there's a there's a very subtle thread at the bottom of it, you know, because when a thought when pretty much anything occurs, when we experience it, we really experience it with a, a kind of. I think the Buddha mentioned it as like we think it's real and permanent. So whenever I have a feeling of fear, it really crowds my entire mind and it feels like that's the only thing and that it's real. And that's mm -hmm. really the issue is that we get caught in that and we think it's real and, and present and valid. And so we just get stuck in it. But if we were just in a state of viewing, we would kind of feel it. And then we would see that little thread at the bottom of like, that's just a, it's just appearing that way. And then we continue viewing and another thought comes up or another something else happens. So that's really key in terms of like, you know, um, if like, I don't know, that's a whole big process in terms of that. Mm -hmm. But I get the point. <laughs> and so that, that's a really good one. So we got right view and sati. And there was two other components that we talked about that were important parts of the kind yeah, of. I've been talking about it just recently, and that is one's right effort with enthusiasm becomes effortless. But in the beginning, there is amount of right effort. And what is the right effort? The right effort is the least amount of effort necessary to actually get the job done. That's the right effort. What's the job? Well, mostly the job is to gladden the mind. Take the effort to gladden the mind. Take the effort to recognize that those things are, in fact, unwholesome and are going to be triggering the instincts. So let's gladden the mind so that it doesn't trigger the instincts. That's in a way we're saying, oh, Mr. Instinct, you have been working so hard your whole life and my whole life to keep me alive. Why don't you now just kind of take a break and take it easy? You don't have to be on such, such big guard anymore. Everything's okay now. Wisdom will take care of the fears so that the self-preservation instinct doesn't have to. Yeah, trying to get into that point, I feel like I'm breaking into that where I could see the process and I could see how to use wisdom and um, there's really kind of like a language or it's a way of learning how to live, to really sense these experiences as they come up, 
you know it's kind of mm-hmm. um not as easy and it's not as um it's not exactly what i had thought in the beginning in terms of being very simple but when you do it right essentially what you're doing is you're just making your experience more positive and that's kind of what really brings the enthusiasm is you see how successful it is and then your life gets better and you begin to experience more of these positive mm-hmm. things and, and the- that enthusiasm grows with the right attitude and the right attitude is i can do this the winner enthusiasm has success built into it as the base as opposed to failure people are not going to get enthusiastic about anything that they expect to fail at all right so we expect success yeah and i mean if you do it once you know how it works you know there's the success and it's really just kind of remembering the success remembering that i can do it it's not like something mm-hmm. that we have to kind of push and force it's just um really once you get into the process it it almost all is a process of remembering um the the hardware's there and we just got to keep remembering and practicing and eventually it'll become more um you know well it's not going to become more of anything life's going to be life and we got to <laughs> but that's how it is okay. That's right. I really enjoyed talking. Yes, Corey, I'm really glad that you called. This has been a delightful conversation. I enjoy this kind of Dhamma talk. Thanks. So uh, continue on with your teaching, remembering, uh, first off, that you're your best student. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And that it, uh, when you have the opportunity to teach the Dhamma to someone else, don't take that. Take the instead the opportunity to teach yourself the Dhamma and let him just be merely the observer. Yeah, yeah, just because that comes with it, this kind of carefree enthusiasm. You're not really worried about totally freeing them from suffering. You're just kind of... Uh living your life you know and taking the easy route and really take the easy way out teach him how to take the easy way out the happy easy no problem no worries make way out for sure all righty okay Corey. good to talk to you see you soon for sure have a good one